You're listening to The Way Home with Daniel Darling, a proud member of the Venom Audio Network. Welcome again to the Way Home Podcast. I'm so glad that you're joining me today. This is Dan Darling, pastor and author and senior vice president at the National Religious Broadcasters. And welcome to this special podcast series during the Easter season. Uh, this is really around the themes from my book, The Characters of Easter, that is available today. If you want to get that, it uh, profiles some of the main characters in the Easter story. Think of uh, folks like Peter and John, Pilate, the religious leaders, the three women who are witnesses at the tomb. You can go to danieldarling.com slash Easter to find out all kinds of free resources for your small group or your church. And you can get this book. It's available everywhere. Books are sold. Amazon, Christian Book, independent bookstores, uh, Barnes & Noble, and other places. That's the characters of Easter. Well, my guest for this episode of the special edition of the Easter podcast is Tish Harrison Warren. And I've had Tish on the podcast before. It's been a few years. Uh, Tish is a gifted uh, writer. She's an Anglican priest. Uh, She uh, is just a very eloquent defender of Christian orthodoxy, of uh, the key doctrines of the Christian faith, and just a, a really really, really gifted writer. She has a new book out called Prayer in the Night. Now, I enjoyed her last book, Liturgy of the Ordinary, just talking about the rhythms and habits of life and how God forms us and shapes us in the small moments of life. She's talking as a mom of children and doing ministry and just trying to balance all of it. Just a great read. Well, she's back with this book called Prayer in the Night, and she talks about prayer, but really most books about prayer are not a it's not about the practice of prayer, but it's about God. It's about how to pray when you're hurting, how to pray when your heart is heavy. When I saw the title, it really resonated with me because I am someone who often at night, if I can't sleep, I'll try to pray. And the older you get, the more pressures you have in your life, especially as a parent, you start to have those prayers in the night, that uh, prayer of dependence and sustenance from the Lord. I also asked Tish about the rhythms of Lent. Uh, to help teach us what are some of the practices that we can do, why they're important, uh, why it it matters that we take out time to think about the death and resurrection of Christ, not just on Easter when it sneaks up on us, but the days and weeks leading up to this really grand uh, holiday. We think about Easter is everything for us. Uh, As Paul said, if Christ did not rise again, then we are, of all people, most to be pitied. Religious people really should be pitied if Jesus did not rise from them. But if he did, everything changes. And Tish is very eloquent about that. She's written several important uh, pieces for places like Christianity Today to say, here's the reason I'm a Christian, because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. So I think you'll enjoy this conversation with Tish Harrison Warren. I'm glad to have uh, on the podcast uh, Tish Harrison Warren, whose uh, work I've followed and read for a long time. Uh, love your books and your writing. 
and your work. So thanks. And you, and we were just talking about it offline, but following you on Twitter, on the Twitters. So thanks for joining me today. I appreciate it. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. So uh, I wanted to have you on for a couple of reasons. One, you have this fabulous new book uh, called Prayer in the Night for Those Who Work or Watch or Weep. I wanted to have you on for that. And then also I'm doing this kind of special resurrection series. And you've written so many great things about that as well. But I loved your other work and uh, it's just like so good. And so tell me a little bit what was going on in your heart and mind to write uh, this book on prayer, prayer in the night. Well, it deals with nighttime and prayer, but also questions of trust in God, um, what people call theodicy, which is the dilemma of kind of how can God be good and powerful and bad things still happen in the world. So, I mean, some of this came out of my own, a lot of the book came out of my own life. Um, and particularly 2017, I had a really rough year. I lost my father. I had a cross-country move. I, um, I had two miscarriages. And I was just in a span of about six months, um, just kind of spiritually and emotionally worn out. I was tired. And I found prayer really, really difficult, um, in part because... Um, I was sort of emotionally spent and felt like I couldn't kind of get myself to come to some sort of ardent belief. Um, but a lot of it was deeply struggling with what does it mean to trust God? How, how do you, if you, if I can't trust God to keep bad things from happening to me or to those I love, to my kids, how do I trust God? And what does prayer look like in the midst of all of those questions? And so I found it really, really hard to pray and kind of rediscovering, walking into the prayers of the church, receive prayers of the church was sort of a lifeline for me. They were a way back into prayer and back into the life of the church and, and really kind of the mystery, the mystery of God in the middle of that. And so um, I wrote this book um, because it, the book centers on one particular prayer to meditate. It's so Compline is a nighttime service. It's the last prayers of the day. It's in the Book of Common Prayer, which is an Anglican kind of prayer. Book. It's it's nighttime prayer. So the book isn't really about how to pray Compline or if you should pray Compline. It, it's um, more that for me Compline. Um, gave this way for me, I, I really struggled with nighttime um, after all of, after the loss of my dad and all of that mm. in 2017, like I just had night, nighttime became really difficult. It would sort of amplify the loneliness and grief. It mm -hmm. was still, I would slow down. And so all of these sorts of loss and questions and grief would come up. And so so nighttime became really hard. And so nighttime prayer was sort of, um, particularly the prayers of Compline acknowledge a lot of vulnerability and mortality. They don't pretend like the world is okay. So I needed something that really honestly held unflinchingly the brokenness, the danger, the vulnerability of being a human being on earth and that God was trustworthy that God was good and, and that held those together in a way that wasn't at all saccharine or um, gave overly pat answers. So 
Compline became really important to me. And I pull out one particular prayer in, in from Compline. And it was a way um, using this prayer, which deals with death and sickness and weeping and watching and waiting, right? That's where I uh, got those words from, re- watching and working, um, was a way sort of into these questions about trust in God, about where is God in the midst of darkness? Where is God in the midst of vulnerability? Where is God when you pray for something and it doesn't happen, right? You you hope for something and it doesn't work out. Like, where is God in the midst of that? And um, this prayer kind of provided like a, a guideline or a way in to these kinds of questions about that I was wrestling with. Yeah, I, I uh, it's interesting when I think about your work too, there's kind of a theme to it if you think about like liturgy of the ordinary and this in the, in this, in the sense that like, I feel like you are helping us make sense of like, you're, you're helping to bridge the, the rhythms of spiritual rhythms in everyday life. Right. Mm-hmm. Like I see that theme. I loved liturgy of the ordinary because it was just so helpful. I read that around the same time I read um, James K Smith's um, yeah. you are mm-hmm. what you love. And they both worked just to see the, how habits form us so yeah. well. And when I think about this book on prayer, like you're saying that when one of the, one of the things that, that we love about some of the resources of the saints who've gone before of things like the book of common prayer and others, like these are resources we could use when we don't have our own, right? Like when we don't know how to pray, we can pray through these, we could pray through the Psalms. We could pray through the prayers of the past. You know, I grew up kind of low church evangelical, which I I'm grateful for. I have no, like, I, I love so much of that the personal relationship with God and, you know, re- relationship versus religion was kind of the, what we were taught. And yet I, I like that there is a kind of resurgence among evangelicals toward more liturgy and more of that. You know, when I was a kid, when I was growing up, it was like, any of that stuff is like, that's what Catholics do. You know, like right, we, right. we were just yeah. like wigged out by that. Yeah, uh, me too. But I, yeah, the recovery of that is so helpful. So just talk about how those, obviously you're Anglican. So yeah, that's what you do. But like, talk about how that helps shape and form us for those moments where we don't really have much, if, if that makes yeah. sense. No, that's absolutely right. And I grew, I grew up Southern Baptist in Texas. So there was, there was no... I, I wouldn't say there's no liturgy because I would argue all churches have liturgy. I mean, liturgy is just the practices that form us, uh, the re- particularly the repetitive practices that form us, that form our loves, as James K. Smith would say, and our imagination, um, which certainly we definitely had at my Texas Baptist church. But folks, and I mean, it would be self-consciously non-liturgical. I mean, you would, people would say we don't have a liturgy and certainly anything that sort of felt Catholic in any way would be mm-hmm. suspect. Right. So uh, I grew up the same and yeah, but I, there has been, I mean, now I'm an Anglican priest. I have been in the Anglican church um, for over 10, probably 12 years now. So a um, little before then, I guess, anyway, 13, 14 years. So I've, and before that I was, I was in the PCA church for a while. So um, I've been kind of, I, I've been on a theological journey, um, but also 
Um, yeah, I mean, I fell in love with liturgy for a lot of reasons. Some of it is the beauty of it. Some of it is just the um, aesthetic. I mean, just the, the use of my body. Um, the idea of formation, I think, became really, has become extremely important to me. Um, I've been really influenced by Jamie Smith's work. I'm saying that because you talked about, um, you know, reading the, his mm -hmm. book. Um, yeah, so it's interesting. I've said this elsewhere. I've told the story elsewhere. But when I first wrote Liturgy of the Ordinary, um, which is really a, a um, introduction to liturgy for folks that... Um, like there's no expectation that anyone knows anything about the broad tradition or liturgy. It's interesting also too, like you said something, and I think it's so true that really every church has liturgy. And it's funny, like I, I'm, I'm Southern Baptist, still Southern Baptist. I love the liturgy of like Anglican and uh, other traditions. Cause I, and I'm glad to see, I'm glad to see more of us embrace that. And yet, like you said, there are some actual traditions that we didn't call liturgy that have become liturgy that also are pre that also are precious to me and were habit forming growing up. Like the Fanny Crosby hymns I learned growing up are precious to me. We didn't call that liturgy, but I, I love that. Even some of the, even though I'm more reformed, some of the revivalist things are still precious to me. So it's interesting how that the habit forming, right? That yeah, I mean, good night, like like guitar worship band yeah. that is a lit like we all know sort of how to respond in that like right. that's that is a formative practice and i mean that doesn't i i'm not even assigning i mean not all liturgy is good liturgy i'm not saying it's good or bad i'm just saying it is it is a repetitive practice that forms us that's spiritually formative but i do think i mean i've said this elsewhere but the book you know liturgy of the ordinary it was really it's kind of a gateway drug into liturgy. I mean, it's a, it's for folks who just like me, like didn't really know much about um, the Christian sort of tradition, the broader, you know, little C Catholic tradition, why people use liturgy, what that's about. So I was so formed by it that I wrote this book um, and I, and I wanted to talk about ordinary life. And it was a way to talk about the sacredness of ordinary life and the formation of ordinary life. But I, so I called the one, when I first pitched it to IVP, to University Press, this is, this would have been 2014, maybe 2013. I mean, I can't remember. I guess it was 2014. So a while ago now, the, they said, yeah, we really like the idea, write the book, but you can't call it liturgy. You can't have the word liturgy in the title because evangelicals won't buy it. Like they're afraid of liturgy. And by the time I wrote the book, the, I gave them all these other chapter titles and they came back and said, what about liturgy of the ordinary? <laughs> and I, said, I thought I couldn't use liturgy. And they were like, well, our marketing <laughs> department is younger and hipper. And they said evangelicals like liturgy now. So I was like, oh, well that works out well for the book, but also, it, it was this, I it was sort of, my book is part of this, I think, but there has been kind of a, re, like, honestly, when I wrote this book, I did not expect it to have the kind of inroads it has in Southern, like among Southern Baptists. Southern Baptists have really embraced this book 
and non-denominational folks have embraced the book um, and Presbyterians have. So there's folks that are non-Anglican um, or Lutheran or Catholic, even, even folks like Baptists who um, historically wouldn't have been, you know, consciously liturgical have really embraced this um, and embraced not just this book, but I'm seeing, you know, Baptists talk about Advent and, oh, yeah. you know, that, you know, have historically not been their jam, their, yeah. their what they do. So they, I do think, um, particularly among younger folks, there is a renewed interest in the broader tradition of broad Christian tradition, like the last 2000 years of broad Christian tradition. It, it is encouraging to see. I, I feel like, cause I, you know, I did a Christmas book and now I have this Easter book that Advent is like a thing. Everyone's saying Advent, no matter what tradition you are right, right now. When I grew up, no one's, no one meant in my world mentioned Advent. Every, every church is doing it. I feel like I didn't, know, I didn't I f- know what it, I never heard of Advent until I was I, an adult. I didn't either, but I feel like Lent is about ten years behind Advent. Do you feel that way? <laughs> <laughs> well, not for I mean, so all of these things are. I mean, I feel like the people that are into Advent, I'm like, yeah, I was in Advent like twenty years ago. Like, <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> because I'm I'm Anglican now, so like you, have, Lent, you sort of have to be. Like, yeah. Lent's a thing for us, right? Right, right. And, and, and that's the thing is it's not just a trend. Like my, in my former pastor, Thomas McKenzie, he taught on the church calendar and he said, I remember this so vividly, this is probably 2011. He said, yeah, so all of this is really popular right now and it's not going to be in about five, 10 years and we are still going to be doing it. I like that. Yeah. Just because this is what we do. This right? is what this you is, do. Yeah. So, so Lent is a thing for Anglicans, but it has caught on less. Um, partly because it's so focused on sin, repentance, self denial. I mean, who who wants that, right? I mean, <laughs> it's 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 a so it's more sort of strident. Let's intense. let's talk a little bit. I want to talk about. Um, resurrection. You've talked, you've written just beautifully about that resurrection and just the, the Easter season. Yeah. Thank you. I have a kind of a trilogy. I have uh, three pieces on Easter that, that kind of go together. Yeah. Yeah. You, you wrote this. I'm going to quote you because I quoted you in my book and then, and then I want to talk about prayer in the night. So you write this. That morning in history, when Jesus rose, there was no expectation of a resurrection. There was no fanfare, no churches gathering with songs of triumph, no bells ringing, nothing. A few women went out to tend to Jesus' dead body. His nobody disciples were laying low, lost in grief and feeling afraid. The rest of Jerusalem and the wider world had moved on. The sun rose. People went about their business, gathering grain and water from wells. They started breakfast. Uh, you were just talking about the ordinariness of that day you know, the resurrection day, uh, which I think it's hard for us to capture now, just, you know, 2000 years later. And then you wrote this. I, li- I like this. You write, it's painfully clear that the resurrection is either the whole hope of the world, the very center of reality or Christianity is not worth our time. I love that. I yeah. love that quote. Yeah. That's what I've really come to over and over. And the, the older I get, the more it 
I think it, I, I think it's true that, and in prayer in the night, I talk about this as well. Um, that really the only evidence we have that the strong don't dominate the, I mean, that there's any justice for those who exploit the weak, that there's any, that, you know, love wins is such a common, you know, phrase now that's sort of bandied about, but there's really not a ton of evidence in in our world (laughs) that love wins, that goodness wins, that, that violence doesn't win, that power isn't the, um, final arbitrator, uh, that truth does prevail, that the ultimately our evidence of that is a, only in a resurrected Christ. That's the only real evidence that it's not just death and nothing else, right? And um, and if it is just death and nothing else, then let's um, get as comfortable as possible, right? Let's get as powerful as possible and as comfortable as possible here on earth. And so, um, more and more, I mean, just the older I get, it's like, it's ride or die. Like I'm all in, like either Jesus ha- is resurrected or like Paul said, we really ought to be pitied above, above all, men, all men. I mean, that the only hope uh, we have is the resurrection. And it's interesting to me, this is a complete side note that we spend so much time talking about God, arguing about God on Twitter, talking about theology, arguing about politics, arguing about, you know, justice and critical race theory, all these other things. And I'm not saying that those don't have value, but I am saying that I think the resurrection gets lost in all of that. And God becomes the sociological phenomenon Mm. that we can discuss or this political phenomenon but at the end of the day, like, I'm here, I'm still in this Christian faith because I believe in the resurrection. And if, like, that's kind of what we need to, that that needs to be the center of our life story and the center of our faith in a way that um, I'm not sure it always is, you know. I, I'm not sure that the capital resurrection, uh, insurrection makes sense if the resurrection is really the center of the Christian life and not politics or something like I, I, I just think that we've, we've made the resurrection really small um, Mm. in, in the American church in a way that is just uh, baffling to me. Cause if this isn't life or death, right. If this isn't everything, if this one event didn't change every single thing in human history, we are really building such an artifice of on sand that it, there's really nothing here. Um, and so it's, it's curious to me how little this becomes the focus of our faith. <laughs> That's a great point. I mean, as Paul said, right. If without, if the resurrection, you know, essentially saying first Corinthians 15, if it's not true, then we're, we should be pitied. Like, what are we doing? Um, and I often think too, that, and I, I try to say this when I'm talking to people who are not believers. If you really look at the story of the resurrection, like what it means, right? Even if you don't believe it's true, like you want it to be true. 
because if that's if it's not true we need we, like we need something right and it it's interesting like even in our stories that we tell whether it's superhero stories or movies we do long for this kind of otherworldly thing to come fix what we have and lead us home and you know the bible's just that's the story right so i i love how you write about that Before we continue our conversation, I want to just encourage you to uh, check out our friends at Faithful Counseling. Faithful Counseling has generously sponsored this episode of the Way Home Podcast. And one of the reasons I was excited to partner with them is because I believe so much in the value of good biblical counseling. In the last few years, I've really noticed the importance of counseling, both as a pastor who has to care for people at times, as a husband, as a father, as a friend. There's just times when all of us need to sit down and talk with someone who is skilled at kind of peeling back through the layers of our lives, both the spiritual and the physical and the places where we need clinical diagnosis and we need a a, a biblical word from God. And sometimes those are, are kind of marbled in together in complex ways that We can't totally understand that someone outside of us can help us do that. I believe this is a really important thing. A lot of times we're afraid to go to counseling. There's a stigma that I don't want to be known as the kind of person who would need to get help. And really, we we shouldn't think that way because all of us uh, are fallen or broken, have needs that someone else that God uh, gifts in a certain way can help with. What's great about the model of faithful counseling is that it's completely confidential and it's completely online. And so if, if you're like me and the kind of the stigma of getting up and going and talking to someone is, is a little bit too much of getting in your car and going to an office or a church, you can do this from the privacy of your home. You fill out a, an intake process and they match you up with a counselor that's suited to your needs and if you happen to get a counselor that is just not working for you you can easily exchange them at no cost you have access to your counselor through text through email and other ways if you have a crisis in between sessions so i want to encourage you to visit faithfulcounseling.com slash way home that's faithfulcounseling.com slash way home and you will get a 10% discount off your first month's membership, which is which is a really fantastic deal. So visit faithfulcounseling.com slash way home and get a 10% discount off your first membership. I really want to encourage you, uh, if you are listening, feel depressed, you have anxiety, or maybe you have some thorny relational issues in your family or at work or other places, to go seek some help with our friends at Faithful Counseling dot com slash way home so i want to talk about prayer in the night because the title itself really captured me uh i don't you know the older i get sometimes you know you like when you can't sleep because you're troubled right uh whether you're going through pain or you've got a lot of stress or worry, whether it's about, you know, money or a relationship thing or a work, like whatever, or, or some tragedy or something you're processing, you know, the practice of just praying in those moments instead of worrying or instead of like 
reaching over and grabbing your phone and just like scrolling for no reason. There, there's something about the, that kind of prayer that really can be precious too, right? Yeah. A lot of people since the book came out, I mean, the book's only been out a week, but I'm hearing from people that, um, who spend a lot of time up at night, you know, from anxiety or from fear or <laughs> during times of grief, these do tend to be moments, um, where people slow down and face the things they're afraid of. So a lot of people wake up with anxiety in the middle of the night. Um, and I did. I mean, I, I talk about after the struggling with all of that. And so the quiet of these hours, especially in really noisy, loud lives, busy lives that a lot of us have, bring up all sorts of emotions that we'd rather avoid. But I do think they are, oh, even those emotions themselves, even that anxiety themselves, or that grief themselves is a place we meet God right? Is a mm -hmm. place that it tells us something true about ourselves, about our experience of being human on earth, of being vulnerable, and um, is an opportunity to meet Jesus in that. I mean, so what's interesting about suffering is not just that God meets us in it, but that we meet God in it, that we the scripture talks about sharing in the sufferings of Christ, completing the sufferings of Christ, which is a crazy idea to think about. But um, I say in the book, it's not that Jesus's suffering wasn't, was incomplete and we needed to like pony up some misery and suffering to like make Jesus's suffering enough. But it is that in our loss, in our fear, in our anxiety, we Find we are enter mysteriously into Jesus's anxiety and loss that he, as he prayed in Gethsemane, right? His sense of sorrow and brokenness as he prayed on the cross, his weeping over Jerusalem, you know, that we experience in our own sense of futility of when we are, you know, long for people we love to live and, and, and they often choose death or they, they look the other way. Right. They, so he's weeping over unrequited love there. Right. And, um, we've, we all experienced that. And so, um, I think in these times of prayer in the night, the really vulnerable kinds of um, prayer that we enter into, we find God beat us there, right? Like that God is there with us in the midst of that was there before us even. Yeah. That I'm, I love that. And, you know, prayer is one of those things too, that I'm sure you felt a little bit of trepidation writing a book on prayer. Like even people who I consider like, you know, prayer warriors or people who are deeply spiritual people. Oh, it, like nobody feels like they're doing good at prayer right? Like we always feel like we're failing, failing at prayer somehow. And even like those prayers in the night that we're talking about, somehow they feel like it feels like it doesn't count as prayer. You know, like I'm laying there and I'm just worried about my kids. I'm worried about this. And I'm just bringing it to the Lord in prayer. Like you just, I feel like, well, does this count as like a prayer life? Does this like, cause it's not as formal or whatever. So just talk about your process about writing a book on prayer and maybe 
are there some books that really influenced you, you know, especially as you're talking about prayer, but also theodicy and how to understand the goodness of God in the midst of suffering. Um, I mean, I read Philip Yancey's book on prayer from like, yeah, it was like 10 years ago. I read it a couple of years, like a year ago, and it was really helpful. And he was wrestling through the same things that you're kind of wrestling through. But I'm, I'm wondering if there's books that have influenced you on that, that really stirred yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. So honestly, I'm just going to be honest. I haven't read like tons and tons of books on prayer. I mean, I've read Richard Foster on prayer a lot. And, um, but honestly, a lot of my insights have come from, um, well, uh, two, a few places. One, just being an Anglican priest, like just praying um, these prayers. So actually through, because the book is a lot about receiving prayers from the church. And so actually praying these prayers was probably the biggest sort of preparation or expertise that I had in this. Um, but I also, uh, reading the father, like really ancient sources of prayer, um, stuff from the Eastern fathers, also, um, Clement is who wrote it and that brings together different, um, essays by the fathers. And a lot of them are about prayer. I mean, man, when you look back at like Augustine and, um, folks like this, like, uh, St. Isaac, the Syrian, I mean, old, like, uh, Gregory Nazianzus, like all of these guys, they write, they write about prayer a lot. Like prayer is a huge, huge thing for them. And so also even just studying like, um, some of the his, church history, particularly monastic history around Benedict, um, you know, Benedict writes a lot about prayer and, and, and does a lot with prayer. Like he, he, he prescribes prayers, right. Tells his monks how to pray. So that was all helpful, but I, I haven't read like loads of contemporary books on prayer. Um, I did, I have read a lot more books on theodicy and suffering. And for this book, I read a lot of those. So some of my favorites, Todd Billings is a mm. theologian that has really influenced me in thinking about this and in prayer. He writes a lot about the Psalms. That's really beautiful. He is a great theologian and he hasn't, he has incurable cancer. So he's speaking out of a, his own deep sense of mortality and vulnerability. And I have loved his stuff, Rejoicing Lament, and then um, his newest book, uh, which actually I, I didn't read before this book came out because it was it just came out fairly recently. But at the end of the Christian life, it's beautiful. Um, and Keller's book on suffering um, I, has been helpful as well. And um, and then um, Scott Cairns wrote a book called The End of Suffering that has also been really helpful, but I could go on and on. My friend Cameron Cole wrote a book called Therefore We Have Hope that was very helpful to me. Um, Lament for a Son, um, yeah. a book called A Grace Disguised, which is just great by Jerry Sitzer is yes. a beautiful, heartbreaking book. So I think I read more on that. On, yeah. And then course, Lewis. I mean, a grief observed is amazing. So, um, his problem of pain is fine, but a grief observed is better, way better. Um, so, I mean, I guess Lewis, 
Lewis has really informed my view of prayer as well. His writing on liturgy in particular, in particular he wrote a lot about Anglican liturgy and prayer. Um, but also um, even stuff, he talks a lot about prayer in Screwtape Letters, right? And um, so I guess that's probably shaped my my view of prayer as well. But one saving grace of of this book is it, well, first of all, it's not a how you should pray book. And it's also so much coming from, I mean, I start the book by saying like, I couldn't pray. Like I wasn't, I, I didn't know how to pray. Like I was struggling to pray. So the, it there was there's no sense where this book was sort of like, I figured out prayer and I'm going to tell you how to do it. This really was like, I mean, I, I, there's a line in the book that says I was a priest who could not pray. And so I certainly come from a place of not, of feeling like, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to enter into prayer. And at the end, I mean, the last chapter I say, there's no wrong way to pray. So your prayers count. What, like you were saying, does this count? The wrong way to pray is just not to pray, right? Um, there was a time when I, I think I wouldn't even understood. I mean, my freshman year of college, I would not have understood the notion of learning to pray or of learning different ways of prayer. I don't think I even knew there was different ways of prayer. Like prayer meant one thing. And that was like talking to God about our thoughts and feelings. Um, and that was the only, that was the only way I knew to pray. So things like, like, like received prayer, praying other people's prayers or silent prayer or um, prayer, um, like certain kinds of prayers that I talk in the book about in the book, like uh, prayers of surrender or um, prayers of indifference, uh, praying the Psalms even like, or prayer offices during the day or prayer through reception of beauty or meditation or contemplation. Like literally had no concept of any of this. And so um, I, and just to be clear, like I do extemporaneous free form prayer, like the majority of the time still like that. I pray like that every day. So no problem with just waking in the middle of the night and telling God your feelings. Like, I mean, in fact, I would commend that and not only no problem, but that's great. Um, but I also think that we can grow in prayer through learning different ways of prayer and 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 ways of receiving prayer and and prayer um, may look really different in different seasons of our life. We may rely on different sorts of prayers more or or less. And and I just didn't know. I didn't know growing up that prayer had such a long and variegated tradition in the church that there were so many different ways of, of praying and approaching God. Um, I didn't, I didn't know. And so it was really kind of through learning the prayer practices of the church that have drawn me deeper into prayer it, itself. Yeah, that's good. Um, I just love that. And really when you write the best books on prayer that I have read are the like it's exactly like the way he did a prayer in the night that you're, you're talking about the God of prayer. You're talking about wrestling with God. You're talking about theodicy. You're talking about how do I reconcile all these things? Those to me, those are the things that move me 
when I read books like that. Okay. So I have two more questions. But can I add, I just want to say, yeah, it's not a technique book at all. Like ultimately, the book- you know, particularly for, for a mom, for busy women like yourself, there's a kind of low level guilt of about the spiritual practices and about spiritual disciplines. Cause you've got kids underfoot. You're trying to, to manage all this. You, you want to, you want to be doing the spiritual yeah. disciplines, but you're trying to figure it all out. I like the way you talk about your experience with that. So maybe just give an encouraging word to women that are in that season of life for whom this is hard. Yeah. Well, I'm there with you. I have a one-year-old right now. So I'm, I also have small children and I'm sleepless and I, my house is a mess. You can't tell right now. Cause I cleared, this is the one space for zoom that is not messy right now is the part you're talking to me at. But, um, yeah, so I'm there. I mean, part of, of the encouragement would be, um, that this is the place that Jesus is meeting us. He's not surprised. He's not shocked that we're tired. He's not shocked that there are kids under feet. He's not shocked that there's a level of chaos in our home that makes it where we can't sort of just, you know, spend all our time in silent contemplation, right? Like, so, um, motherhood itself is full of spiritual practice, right? Serving other people, humbling ourselves. um, to, to, I mean, there is a humiliation in wiping bottoms and, um, talking about Thomas, the tank engine all day. And, um, uh, there's a good humility that grows in that, but it's also, it's serving other people. And it's talked about in an essay that I wrote for Christianity today recently for my column about the monastic call and the monastic temptation, meaning there is a call of, um, I think we need to have time alone. We need to have time of silence and solitude and prayer. I mean, we've had this throughout the tradition, but also just for like mental and spiritual health. So, I mean, I would encourage like if people are in that place, one of the things that my husband has done that has just been the best in our marriage is even when he was in grad school and working full time and we were crazy busy. And when we had little kids, he gave me four hours on, I can't remember if it was Saturday or Friday afternoon, but it was like, I could take two of the hours in sleep and two of the hours and go sit in silence, pray, sit. I got a key to my church and would drive and go sit in, in my church and just pray and use that time to journal. And so there is some, like, I would encourage folks who are in that to in use friends, use whatever they can to get some time and space. But there's a temptation of that to think that's the real spiritual stuff we do. And that's not true. We can't bifurcate our life into the spiritual and secular. Like when you, you know, make macaroni and cheese for your children, that's a spiritual act. It's a deeply spiritual act. You're serving people with your life when you're nursing a baby. Oh my gosh, what a spiritual act. I mean, you're giving your body for them. Like it's, 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 
it points to Christ giving his body for all of us. I mean, it's, it's deeply, I don't, it's not a sacrament, but it's certainly sacramental and that it's Mm. the stuff of earth that is deeply holy and, um, and it's exhausting. And I don't want to make it like, it's this always like glory and the heavens are opening up, but there it's spiritual. What holiness, what growing in holiness looks like for a young mom is not some kind of abstract ideal of what holiness would look like for mother Teresa. Mm. It looks like growing in holiness as a young mom, right? It looks very, um, holiness is this, is this gritty earthy thing that is particular to one's own context and moment. And so the type of patience, the type of humility, the type of meeting Jesus in our exhaustion, um, the, the type of meeting God in our boredom, because people don't talk about how boring it is to um, have young kids. Um, yeah. Those are, those are places of self-emptying, of kenosis, that, are, that God is using to make us disciples. Like that is what discipleship looks like for us in that season. So it's not, oh, I got to get up an hour before the kids to have a devotional life. It's... Um, I mean, I, I do think like find time to pray, find, and that may look like, like I said, that was four hours a week for me when we had two little kids. Um, and now it looks different. I, I take some time in the morning, a little, like half an hour in the morning. And then, but again, it's like completely because my husband is giving me that time. And that means he doesn't have that time. So this has to look different for him. Um, but also we can't, you can't think of the spiritual life as, some devotional exercise. It has to be in the warp and woof of a regular Thursday at the dinner table. Things are chaotic. Like that is the place that Jesus is meeting us in our actual life. And I think something that the enemy can do is tempt us to just sort of live in fantasies about what a quote unquote real spiritual life looks like. And so we never actually meet God in our real and lived ordinary life. And that's the only place to meet God is in our actual day, in our actual experience with our actual children in our actual um, marriage and, and not in the sort of what we think would be ideal. That's good. One more question just to end this. I'm just curious as a writer, uh, you're a writer, I'm a writer. I just want to know like your writing sort of method. Like, do you, do you have a word count every day? Do you carve out chunks? Like, what does that look like for you? Yeah, I've never successfully had a word count every day. Um, I just don't. I um, So typically when I start a project, it really helps me to have a little a time blocked off. Like the, for the next four days, I'm going to do nothing. I'm not going to look at my email. I'm not going to do anything. I'm only going to work on this project. That's really just to start it because like I said, because I have three kids and a little infant, like I can't, that's not a sustainable thing. Like I have to take a short chunk of time and kind of like start the engine. And then um, I spend weeks and weeks and weeks working you know, a couple of hours. If I get, if I get four hours in, that's like a crazy productive day for me. It's usually closer to two, but anyway, I just write, I write it all out 
And sometimes it pours out and I get 2000 words in a day. And sometimes it ekes out and it's like 300 words. I mean, it's very short, but I just get, I get sort of, and it, and it's terrible writing. It's the sort of like, if I, you know, if I die, do not show anyone those manuscripts, like burn it. It's awful, awful, awful writing. So I do that over, I usually try to give myself a certain amount of time for that. But I, um, like what I'm saying is I'll do that. I'll say I'm going to, for this week, I'm going to try to get these two chapters done or this one chapter done. Usually I don't get more than a chapter done in a week. And then, so that'll take, you know, let's say 10, 11, 12 weeks to get through a, um, like a book, but honestly, usually it's more than that because it stops and starts. So let's say I take probably four months to get through and, but then it's horrible. And then I just start again and I rewrite, I edit, 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 edit. So most of my writing is rewriting. So it takes me about a year and a half to write a book. All but four months of that is really rewriting, 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 rewriting. So that that's what I do, which is partly why word count doesn't work for me because the vast majority of my time I'm spending editing and rewriting things. Yeah. That's interesting. I love hearing that. I love hearing how your process for it, but Tish Warren, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for the coming on the podcast. And most importantly, thank you for your work, for your voice. Uh, I want to encourage folks to read your books, to go get Liturgy of the Ordinary, the authentic version on Amazon. (laughs) Uh, Go get Prayer in the Night and check out your work for Christian Today and other places. But thank you so much for joining me. I really, really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this edition of the way home podcast with daniel darling for more information you can visit danieldarling.com if you do like this podcast we encourage you to subscribe on itunes or your favorite podcast catcher we also encourage you to rate and review so others can know about the podcast you can follow me at at dan darling on twitter or go to my facebook page facebook.com slash daniel m darling i also want to encourage you again to check out my latest book called the characters of easter that's out with Moody Press. Thank you for listening again to the Way Home Podcast. This is a production of the National Religious Broadcasters. Mm-hmm.